High Noon. This is News Talk. This is High Noon and this is Kira Kelly here on News Talk. And we have loads coming up for you, including... All that stuff on Ryanair. I'd say lots of people are very worried, wondering if they're actually going to get away on their uh, holiday or on their school tour or whatever it is. And uh, also about being able to trick a self-drive car. Everyone's talking about the fact that in a few years time, none of us will be driving our cars. But how much do you really trust something robotic? But one of the things you always do when you come on the radio is you look and see what's in the news today and you're thinking what's topical. And what kept popping up in my news feed earlier today was that Kim Kardashian, the guy who robbed her in Paris and stole her jewellery, has written her an apology letter from um, prison. And, you know, that's fine and fair play and everyone's entitled to show remorse and all that kind of stuff. But the question that I have to ask, and, and I, it's a genuine question, I'd love you to let me know what you think at 53106, is who cares why are the Kardashians news? Earlier on in the week, my, my, I have a breaking news app on my, on my PC and it kept popping up saying um, one of them and maybe possibly several of them were pregnant and that was breaking news too. Please, someone explain to me, you know, why why we care. I know a good few things about them. I, I couldn't necessarily pick some of them out of a lineup, but I know a good few things. I know Kim Kardashian has a huge bum and that it doesn't look like she was born with it. Uh, I know that uh, her dad is now, was Bruce, is now Caitlin and is transgender. I know that some of them have gone out with each other's ex-brothers, cousins or something. There's a bit of stuff I know, I do, because it's filtered through to me, but I cannot understand what the attraction is. I cannot understand the appeal and I'd love someone to know because they're obviously a massive phenomenon and I know somebody gave a, a can of Pepsi to a soldier or something as well and that was terrible because it was something to do with something. So I know some of the background but I would like someone to explain this aspect of pop culture to me because I don't understand it and I I appear to be in a minority because clearly they are breaking news they're breaking news all the time. So 53106 who gives a toss about the Kardashians not me but tell me why I'm wrong Okay now on to something a little bit more uh, actually important and serious and all that kind of stuff. This week, the Taoiseach Leo Radker announced that a referendum was going to be held next year asking people to vote on whether or not we should repeal the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. For those of you who are living on another planet, the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution is the one that gives equal right to life of the fetus and a mother. Meanwhile, tomorrow is the sixth annual March for Choice, where pro-choice campaigners will march on Dáil Éireann. Also happening tomorrow, the Pro-Life Love Both campaign are holding a street blitz around the country asking people to protect the Eighth Amendment. And all this activism is taking place. And that's out there in the front. But working away in the background is the Oireachtas Committee that was established earlier this year to consider the Citizens' Assembly report and recommendations of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. So we're going to talk a little bit about the actual nuts and bolts of what this means and about the work of this committee and the implications. And joining me now uh, to discuss all of that is the committee chairperson, Senator Catherine Noon. Catherine, you're very welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, Kira. Thanks for coming in to us. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so, the, so the background is, uh, uh, let's call the background, some of it is white noise in terms of there, there's obviously people feel very strongly for and against this very important issue. But talk to us a little bit about the work of your committee, because you're now looking basically at the report of the Citizens Assembly and working out where to go from here. 
And where are you going from here? Well, we had a number of private meetings where we set out our work programme. And obviously there was some very robust debate about what witnesses should appear, what we should discuss, in what order um, and all of that. So that has been agreed in consensus um, in by the committee. And every everything we do as a committee is a joint decision. So it may be that there will be votes on occasion in the committee. But for, to date, it has been more or less on consensus that we have got our, our draft work programme together. So, I'm so sorry, how many members of the committee are there? 22. Catherine? 22, yeah, okay. Of which I'm one. So I obviously, I oversee and, and chair and yeah. I'm, I'm a referee as such um, and I suppose my views are irrelevant and I want to oversee a balanced and a fair process where everybody gets to ask the questions they wish to ask and so, you know, that the committee gets as much information from the witnesses that we have in. So we have a very heavy workload between now and December. Uh, we have front loaded that so we get as many of the witnesses in as soon as we can so that we really get to the core of the issue in terms of legal evidence, medical evidence and you know we've, we we decided not to duplicate the work of the Citizens' Well that's Assembly. what I was going to ask you. Are, are, the, are the expert witnesses that you're bringing in, are they much the same witnesses as the Citizens' Assembly so, uh, heard from as well? Some of them are and others aren't. So uh, we've taken a modular approach. Um, the first week we had uh, just Justice Lafoy, um, in which I thought was a very good start, and the committee agreed that, that that we would have her in, and we discussed, you know, the citizens' assembly and what got us to the point that we were at starting this committee. Um, uh, this Wednesday, we had three lawyers in, and they discussed all the, you know, potential possibilities and the very complex legal cases for, um, you know, any four or five options that we that yeah. we could uh, come come up with at the end of the day. Uh, next week we'll move on to the human rights area and um, we'll we'll have uh, the WHO in the week after that and we, then the week after that we'll have the the um, masters of the maternity hospitals and doctors and and so on. Catherine, I think what people are wondering is is are you reinventing the wheel as it were in terms of Citizens Assembly in fairness to them spent a long time 10 weekends pouring over a huge amount of information and giving of their time and all of that they, they came up with a set of recommendations they came up with a set of recommendations that surprised a lot of people I would suggest um, they s- suggested liberalising our abortion laws very much in line with the rest of Europe To, a, to I think that's probably a fair summary isn't it? Well more or less I mean it's out there what the Citizens yeah, Assembly yeah. So, 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 so a, a, a different regime to what we have now and they suggested removing the Eighth Amendment and replacing it only with something saying that this should be legislated for by the Oireachtas. Why the need then to pour over this ground again? Because what a lot of people might say is this, is that the Citizens' Assembly was a kind of a slight uh, can-kicking exercise and, and bear with me, I haven't finished the question. No, but, no, that's But fine. that it was that. It came up with something that surprised the Oireachtas and the Oireachtas now are sort of reframing and reshaping it to come up with something that may be more acceptable to the Oireachtas. I don't want to undermine the work of the committee or in any way cast aspersions on no. you, but but if you're going over the same ground again, have you just thrown out the report of the Citizens' Assembly Absolutely. and it carries no weight now? Absolutely not. The Citizens' Assembly's recommendations are the core of our work. So we'll go through each of those recommendations. I mean, I think it's a very important process for legislators to go through this and to get to the core of it. I mean, with the greatest will in the world, some members of the Oireachtas will have you know, engaged somewhat with what the Citizens' Assembly yes. were doing, but they won't have been involved in it. And uh, I think it's very important that we go through this process and it was the intention from the start. It's not like anyone saw the result of the Citizens' Assembly and said, oh, we should get politicians okay. to look at this. Okay. This was the idea from the get-go. So this has always been the process. This has been the process. Okay. Yeah. With regard to the 22 members of the committee, 
Are they all people who, you know the way if you were drawing members of a jury, you would preclude people with strong views at the beginning from being part of it. That hasn't been the case with the committee. You have people who are strongly pro-choice and strongly pro-life. Is that correct? Well, we have all all sides of the argument, I think, represented on the committee. And that was a matter for um, the groupings in the Oireachtas to decide who would be put on, on the committee. And each member of the committee is entitled to ask any questions sure. and have any views they wish. And indeed, most of the parties have, have a free vote on that, will have a free yes. vote on the issue. Would it not have been a, a, an easier situation had the committee not been made up of people maybe who weren't strongly pro-life or strongly pro-choice? Would that not have been easier to draw from the middle ground so well, that the, this doesn't become polarised? I would say the vast majority of the committee would consider themselves in that in that place, you know, and you tell me, anyone who hasn't spoken about this issue over the years and how you can draw from what they said in the past, what they think now, you know, I mean, I think, I think the committee actually is, well, it makes it... It is composed of people with views on in every direction on okay. this. And I think that that is helpful because it will be representative of the Irish people who hold a, a, a diverse range of views on the issue. OK, so let, let's fast forward a small bit. You're, you're obviously going to, and as you say, rightly, you have a heavy workload ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, first of all, is it likely that, that obviously uh, Taoiseach has said that we're going to have a referendum? The Dates being touted publicly are, are May, June. You can't obviously say anything about that and I understand that. Yeah. But do you think that it should that be the date that's called that the work of the committee will be done, done by then in a timely fashion well, actually, that would facilitate that? I should have said that to you at the outset. The reason we had the private meetings was because once we sit in public, we have three months to report. So we must report before December. Okay. Yeah. So, so the timelines that have been discussed, you know, that's a matter for people other than me, I have to concentrate on the process that I oversee and I don't do the integrity of that process any favours by speculating about no, no, referendums no. or anything of the sort. So, you know, I'm very careful that, um, you know, I'm seen to be fair and balanced on this issue sure. as chair. But you, you feel that the three months will, will get you through the amount of workload that you have to get through and all I that I think it's of- challenging. But I feel confident that we will we will attain that. I get the impression from, you know, the, the strong feeling, I should say, more than an impression from the members of the committee that they are very much um, in favour of us doing our work within the time we have been yeah. assigned. And, and we're not going to prejudge what your report may say, obviously. Yeah. But when your report has been formulated and has been handed over, mm-hmm. what then, Catherine? Because I, th- I do think people want to know what this process involves. So you hand over your report. Well, what happens next? Th- well, <laughs> I'm, I suppose, concerned with my process. Thereafter, it's up for up to others to decide that um, whether or not there is a referendum that will happen in due course for a ren- referendum to occur there needs to be legislation so it will be for um, the the AG and and the department uh, to to draft up legislation in due course and that will have to go through the houses of the Oireachtas and thereafter in like with any referendum there would be a referendum you know okay and the the legislation that would be drawn up will that be based exclusively on your report? Will it be based on your report plus the report from the Citizens' Assembly or is that unknown? It's unknown really and I'd rather not comment on that if that's okay. I I want to concentrate on what we're doing and I'm intent on getting through all of the witnesses that we have to to hear from, getting as much information as we can, giving as good a report as we can on all of our findings to the Oireachtas and thereafter it's over to the Oireachtas of which I'm a member but at that stage we can think about that. And I think it's fair comment to say that a lot of people will, will... you know, hold judgment on the, until they see what the wording of, of a likely referendum would be if there is a referendum. Yeah, yeah and, yeah, and that's probably not unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Lastly, Senator Nguyen, because I know you're a busy woman. Um, 
the workings of this committee, there's 22 members uh, of the Oireachtas sitting, examining issues. Some of them, as you say, may not have maybe really considered these issues in any great depth before um, doing so now. Has it been a very difficult and challenging environment or is there, shall we say, a mature attitude among the committee that there is work to be done and irrespective of different views that respect and uh, objectivity needs to be maintained. How, how has it been within I, the committee? I think that the committee has been um, a very good forum so far. I think politicians are used to disagreeing with one another and um, if we didn't, I think there'd be something wrong. And uh, I intend to oversee a process that will incl- be inclusive for everybody on the committee. And I think it's important that questions that all sides want to ask in, in the public that that information is gotten out there so that people can really educate themselves during this process and that would I think that would be a great outcome for, for the committee. Okay. My sincere thanks. Thank you for coming in. That is Senator Catherine Noon who is of course the chairperson of the Oireachtas Committee on the Eighth Amendment and uh, I suppose in fairness we need to let you do your work and we look forward to hearing what exactly that report will entail. Thank you for coming in. Hi Noon. This, this is News Talk. Okay, earlier in the week we spoke to Professor Alison Pollock, who is the Director of the Institute of Health and Society at Newcastle University, on whether or not rugby should be banned from schools because of the dangers of head injury, concussion, collision, all that kind of stuff. And we did get on to the topic of concussion that got Joan Wynne to get in touch with us to tell us about her late husband, Brian. Joan, thanks for speaking to us here on High Noon. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, you were listening to the show and we were obviously talking about the dangers of uh, concussion and uh, down the line you can develop from that brain, you know, damage and, and neurodegenerative diseases and all that kind of stuff. Tell me a little bit about your husband's story. Well, um, Brian played a lot of rugby and he was about 26 at the time and um, he suffered a bad head injury during this time. Now, he spent 11 days in the Richmond with on and off concussion. And he seemed to have got over it very well and there was no problem. But during the next 10 years, on and off, he was experiencing a strange burning rubber smell. And we kind of um, felt because he was a Honda dealer, we thought maybe it was coming from the tyres, hitting the tyres in the showroom. And we couldn't think of, you know, I wasn't getting it. So I thought, then one Saturday he came home and he said to me, you know, this burning smell is overwhelming. And he said, you can't get it. So we decided maybe an eye test. So he went for the eye test and he was immediately admitted to a hospital. And the neurosurgeon um, he was in the States at the time. It was very new at the time in Ireland yes. at that time. So we waited. He waited for two weeks. And when he came back, he diagnosed a benign meningioma brain tumour. Okay. Uh, that, so, can I ask you, what age were you and Brian at the time? Uh, Brian, when this started, he was 26. Well, the, the, we were the, just the, married. I was 23. He was 26. Oh, good Lord, so young. Um, so, obviously, uh, um, he was in hospital for 11 days. He must have had a very significant 
head injury. Most people who might have concussion might be in for a day or two. At well, the, at I think most. it had a couple of episodes of the, um, okay. the you know, the, tumor, the injury at the time. And I think they kept him for observation as well as everything else, okay. you know. Yeah. But uh, it's just that he decided, the, the neurosurgeon decided to operate. Okay. But unfortunately, during the surgery, the optic nerve was cut and he suffered a stroke. Um, as the tumour was benign and the burning spell was consistent over the 10 years, that it seemed to be an aura from the brain. I could never guess it. It was coming from his head. Yeah. And it was consistent since his rugby injury. And I just feel it would be beneficial to do maybe a survey on older head injuries. Yeah. This, I'm not medical. I have... Do you, know, do, do you know what it strikes me in this? Because there isn't really any evidence that, that would say that a brain tumour would be caused by a head injury. But you know what it, it does strike me as very possible is is that if your husband had a head injury and also had a brain tumour and they were two separate things, if we kept putting the symptoms down to the head injury, he probably didn't get the help for the brain tumour because he'd had the head injury and it sort of, it seemed like a reasonable Cause, do you know what I mean? That 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 it was missed because everyone said Asher he'd had that bang to the head or whatever. So, so that that was why it maybe went on for so long. But you were obviously very yeah. very. I mean, I just married a young a young woman. We were, we were yeah. But he had the next um, ten years. Then he he survived for ten years with this tumor. So, the, but he was blind for because of the fact the optic nerve was yeah. cut. He was blind for four years of that time and also the the nerve died in the eye so it was closed but um, it, there was no cancer there ever at yeah. any stage but yeah. from what I believe the meningiomas are usually benign you'd know more about this yeah. than I would but um, but th- this this brought him up to his d- did Brian pass away Joan in his mid-30s? No, he survived then for 10 years and he's now dead 20 years. He was 50. Okay, but still a very young, a very, died. very, very yeah. young man. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, 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 you're right, meningiomas can be benign, but if they take up enough space inside your head, they still Well, that's what hu- the problem, huge, it was wrapped around yeah, the main artery. Huge, so. huge problems. And and you obviously were dealing with this from, from your youth and all the way through your married life. Did you guys go on and have a family? Oh, we have five children. Amazing, and, brilliant. Um, Laura, the youngest, who got married just two weeks ago, um, she she was only five yeah. when he got sick. So, but they were great, five of them, I have to say now, but they, they didn't give me <laughs> during that time. Which, which, is, which is a credit to, to, to both yourself and Brian, but, but, but nonetheless, it's, it, when you lose somebody young and they miss things like their youngest wedding and all those milestones, no doubt grandchildren will come along and all that kind of stuff. There is a, a, a massive loss. You went on and you set up a, a support group yourself, Joan. Well, I, I actually felt there has to be somebody else out there like yeah. Brian who's got this. So I heard um, a man called Arthur on Gay Burns show and I thought he was saying very similar things to Brian. Yeah. And he had, um, he was, he obviously had a brain tumor too, but he couldn't work and he was a very clever guy. And I, I rang Gay Byrne and I rang the, the station and he yeah. rang me back and he said, I'll, I'll ring Arthur and see if you can meet up. So he did. 
and we, we I got the two lads to meet because Brian was as mad as a hatter and Arthur was a very nice <laughs> normal guy and um, but they got on fantastically and from that we started meeting in each other's houses and um, Hilda Allen was another lady who joined us next and but they were fantastic support, you know, out there. And you set up so, a peer support group. We did, but we didn't know really much about it. We were all, yeah. you know, in the dark, really. Yeah, yeah. But, but it grew from there and we got rooms. Brian knew somebody in the concert hall that gave us a room for probably about six months, I think, at the beginning. And then we got a room. In, but we were in St. Luke's Hospital. Yeah. They were fantastic. And we had a huge crowd. And... The families were actually suffering more than the of course. Patients. Well, you do so, suffer when you see a loved one slipping away from you and suffering yeah, as well. Yeah, people don't realise that. Of course, you do. The families who are going through there's always other issues, financial and every other way. Yeah, of course. And um, yeah, huge a family of five to bring up and and somebody sick and unwell. But we had the garage at the time, and yeah. um, we had a Honda dealership in that mine, and we had a partner, so he decided to go to Australia. Straight away when you know when this happened, and but I I took over for about two years. Did you? And, um, but you know the guys were coming in and they'd look around to see if there was anything that resembled a man. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you pointed out you were well able, but you're some woman, aren't you? A husband sick with a brain tumor, five kids, and you running a Honda dealership. That that says quite well, a lot about you, doesn't it? To, I remember the first consignment of Hondas that came in. I actually remember when the Hondas arrived too, but <laughs> back in the day. But I, I, I mean, I had to write this check. I thought, oh my God, many knots. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, um, it's very interesting what you were saying that Brian suffered with. Obviously, he suffered with, he was getting weird smells. And that is a symptom that people may be even listening today. If you're smelling something, then it's not there. That's a neurological symptom that needs to be checked out. Well, that's what, that's the whole reason. The story I, I you are telling me, and it was back in the eighties and everything. It makes me think. First of all, we probably didn't have great scanning facilities here in Ireland. We probably only had a handful of scanners in the whole country, if even a handful. And right. it also strikes me that you probably that those symptoms that Brian had maybe the meningioma was already going on. I, I can't see how a bang to the head would, 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 would cause anything like that. But what, what does seem to make sense is, is that he was having symptoms and going, oh, that time I got banged in the head at the rugby. It's all down to that. And because of that, the fact that the poor man was, was having a brain tumour was probably missed. Did, did it take a long time from when the symptoms developed to actually getting some kind of a hard diagnosis? Well, it was, uh, we didn't go for 10 years. I mean, the first, um, yeah, it did. It took quite quite a while. It was ten years on and off. Good you Lord. know, experience in that that burning rubber. And and, and, and tell me, John, does the support group still run? Does, does oh, they do, and they're they're operating on St Luke still, and Cork and Galway. It's now, Galway spread out around the country with, with uh, Cancer West. Yeah, and they're brilliant. I mean, and the people who run it, I mean, they're just amazing. But I decided. After 20 years, that we let some younger people with the technical knowledge come in, well, come on board. You, you know, you have the experience, and you've gone through that that kind of that kind of life. Is there a, a contact number, Joan, or or a website or anything? If people people who maybe are listening, maybe they have somebody or they themselves well, they have, have a website. The Irish Brain Tumor Support. 
Group. If somebody Googles that, they'll find the website. And, and, the and you. The Cork Group now, are, they meet in the University Hospital. Very in Cork, good. And the, 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 the Galway Group meet in Cancer West. Okay. And, and you found it a great support at the time. That's, that's right. Yeah. And uh, well, at the time, it really helped me as well. You yeah, know, absolutely. That got us through, and we, you know, it's amazing the support that was out there. We had, to, and we also had great fun uh, running this thing. Yeah, because we had a party for everybody in the Grange Golf Club every year while I was there, and. We had lots of fun things and I think you have to do that side of it too. I think you do. I think you have to celebrate all those kinds of things. Well, you do. You know, life is short for everybody and precious yeah. and I think, I think... And we wrote a book while we were... Did you? While I was involved. It was called A Sense of Humour because my husband was as mad as a hatter and <laughs> he was always joking and, yeah. and we we, um, we called it A Sense of Humour and, <laughs> you know, it's amazing. They all sent in their, their little bits and pieces. But oh, with my daughter at the time with nine and I said to her are you going to do anything for the for the book and she wrote I'll just very quickly tell you my dad is sick I wonder why he has a brain tumour and a run down eye I really really wonder why I was only five when my dad got sick but now I'm nine and I don't cry a bit but why but why because I am nine Oh God. Oh Joe. Ah look, listen, thank you so much for calling us and thank you so much for sharing the story of that. And, I'm sh- and I hope maybe some of the out there might design it. I'm so I'm so <laughs> sure that somebody listening somebody here listening will will be moved and, and, and supported and uplifted by what you've just told us. And I know it's only a, a, a it's not a direct link in any way to, to, to concussion or anything like that. But we just thought yeah. it was a very interesting story. And thank you so much for getting in touch and the best of luck with everything. That's Joan. Thank Wayne. you very much for calling. High Noon. This is News Talk. Welcome back to High Noon with Kira Kelly here on News Talk. And do get in touch with us. You can text us at 53106 and talk about any of the stuff that we're talking about today. Um, lots of you getting in touch about Senator Catherine Noon. Kira, the Citizens' Assembly are only 100 non-elected people with whom many, many people disagree. Their opinions are probably not reflective of the rest of the country. And that's from Jill. Jill, you may be right, but I think that was the point of them was to try and reflect the country. Um, and then people were surprised at, w- at what came out. I would suggest that what came out of the Citizens' Assembly may have been because they looked at it in such depth and most people maybe didn't spend as much headspace on the whole issue. Uh, and with regard to that last caller there, Joan Wynne, who was talking about losing her husband. Uh, Can't a person get a burning smell which is not there because of a symptom of stroke and I guess possibly other neurological conditions? Yes, uh, I think if you you do get strange smells that aren't there, you should probably get a checkup because uh, if you're smelling something that's not there, something has gone a little bit awry, I suppose. And lots of you getting in touch, like me, who haven't a clue about the Kardashians. Kiri, you're absolutely right. The Kardashians are nobody made into celebrities by silly teenagers. Ah, poor teenagers. I think Teenagers are being fed this in their timelines too. And Patricia from Clara says, Kira, I'm a 69-year-old retired teacher and I think we have certain things in common. Neither of us get religion or the Kardashians. Uh, you're, you're right about that, Patricia. And I wonder, are we, are we um, alone in those views? 
Colette says, Kira, if you don't give a toss about the Kardashians, why are you wasting airtime talking about them? Have you nothing better to occupy your time? Colette, the whole point is, is that they're everywhere. That's the thing. We're only talking about them because they're being talked about. They were on the news this morning. It's, 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 I want someone to explain to me what the, the attraction is because I, I, I can't fathom it. And Anthony says, and this is the last one on this, is the Kardashians have no relevance to anyone with a modicum of grey matter. However, look on every main street and see young girls who are clones of them and other meaningless so-called celebrities. They are the role models that a lot of young girls aspire to be instead of looking towards women who have led the way in science, culture, business, etc. Famous for being famous, part of our social media society. And it's sad, really. Yeah, again, I wouldn't be too hard on... on, Teenagers, that's normal for teenagers, isn't it? That they would, you know, we all looked up to the the bands or the celebrities of our time too. But I suppose the, the thing is, they seem to be making that jump into mainstream news. It's reported on the news what these people do. And that certainly wasn't the case. Um, when I was young, there was kind of a difference between celebrity stuff and news. Now... Ryanair. Ryanair have obviously been in the news a lot lately and uh, Ryanair has until 5pm this evening to sort out compensation for the hundreds of thousands of passengers who've been hit by mass flight cancellations. And the Civil Aviation Authority has instructed the airline to tell passengers that they are entitled to be rerouted by another carrier and explain how that will work. So... Can Ryanair ever recover from this? This is unprecedented. To discuss this, I am joined now by aviation analyst Alex Macharis. Did I say that right, Alex Macharis? Macharis. Macharis. I'm doing my best. You're very welcome to the programme. Alex, can you just, for the people who are listening, maybe first of all, who have been affected, and there's another 18,000 flights cancelled, another 400,000 passengers going to be affected. Can you just outline what they're actual rights are to start off with because Ryanair have been putting things like limits on the cost of replacement flights and all that and that's not something that's actually allowable isn't that correct? That is correct yes and um, it's it's a shame that Ryanair are, are persistently misleading passengers in their tactics to try and convince the majority of those affected by this disruption that for example they circulated news saying everybody will be entitled to a £40 Ryanair voucher and so you would expect about 40 to 50% of those passengers who are affected who don't know their right to think, okay, well, that must be what I'm entitled to. Ryanair giving me a £40 voucher. Well, absolutely not. That's just a gesture of goodwill on their side that they didn't have to do. But, but what you are entitled to as your rights as a passenger are a heap of things, and that's because of EU law. And what you mentioned there about the CAA being particularly angry with Ryanair about them not rerouting passengers on other airlines is kind of a breach in their main contracts with the civil aviation authorities, which makes it illegal. So let's let's clarify. When you purchase a ticket with Ryanair, no matter how low fare, no matter if it costs five euros, if you're purchasing a ticket, you are taking out a contract with the airline of which they are obligated to get you from A to B, one way or another. So if you choose, actually, I don't want a refund because it's too difficult for me now to find other flights, you can be standing at the Ryanair desk and say to them, you have this obligation to get me to my destination, do it. And one way or another, they have to, no matter if it's on a rival airline, if it's on an airline totally unrelated, it could even be via a bus if it was a land route. But they have that obligation and it's that that they're not doing. And it's that that the majority of passengers have no idea about. Okay, so it looks like they're not perhaps fulfilling all of their obligations to passengers and it's important that passengers gen themselves up on what those obligations exactly are. But broadening this 
out. Alex, we're looking at, I mean, this this is the second time that they've cancelled a massive tranche of flights in a very short space of time. They've told us this is to do with rostering problems, excess holidays that hadn't been factored in and all the kind of stuff. A lot of people have said that actually 700 pilots have left Ryanair in the recent times that they haven't been able to recruit new ones and that this is not a rostering issue. This is an issue of recruitment and retainment of staff. The pilots at Ryanair do appear to be disgruntled. Are we looking at us moving forward into a time of turbulence, dare I say, for Ryanair in general about their ability to actually meet their commitments in terms of flights? Ryanair have an incredibly ambitious schedule. And with that schedule, it's full of frequencies that are seeing aircraft do six or seven sectors, which are flights per day. Now, with that, they, of course, need the staff to manage these flights and they need to adhere to international law to ensure that every pilot, every cabin crew is getting sufficient rest in between flights. There is sufficient turnaround time and sufficient minimum rest um, overnight during the sleeping hours. Now, with this ambitious schedule and the mess up, as the CEO called it, of scheduling, it seems that a bubble within and with that is going to be long-term impacts and implications to the airline. We already have Michael O'Leary saying about how in April 2018, he's grounding 10 aircraft. I mean, this is unprecedented for any airline, let alone Ryanair, who fights for that last seat to be sold, who go to the edges of the margins in terms of aircraft usage and optimization. So to, to be worried about the impacts that will take place in April next year suggests that this is definitely a huge problem that they can see from now. It wouldn't surprise me if, in fact, they cancel another batch load of flights as this gets worse. Okay. Ryanair, you know, they've they've practiced this model of of no frills, low fare airlines for a very long period of time. It has worked well for them. They have eroded other airlines in the market. They have created a huge market share for themselves. They have started as a small airline and have now become one of the biggest airlines in Europe, in the world. There is questions around the sustainability of the model, looking at what we're looking at now. But for all the people who would have maybe automatically booked Ryanair because of the, the, the low fares thing that are now going, I don't know if I'm going to book Ryanair because I don't know that Ryanair are going to run the flight that I wanted to go on my, my city break to Barcelona on or whatever. Is, is there a case that, that this is going to be really, really bad coming down the line for sales for Ryanair and that the damage from this reputationally and also just in terms of bookings that we haven't mm-hmm. even seen the tip of that iceberg yet? Exactly. This is definitely something that is not going to be welcome news to anyone inside Ryanair management, because like you said, all you need is for five people to be deciding to go abroad and then think, do you know what, I'm not going to book Ryanair because I've seen them in the headlines, they're cancelling flights here, there and everywhere. I just don't want the risk. Now, five empty seats could be the deter- could decide if that aircraft, that flight, breaks even and if they make a profit on that flight or not. Because when Ryanair is setting fares so low, they are relying on passengers to fill up the aircraft and then hopefully spend your money on other things. Buy two suitcases uh, of luggage allowance, buy 10 scratch cards on board, buy Jean-Paul Gaultier from Duty Free. That's what they're hoping for and that's how they manage to break even. And it's why they really push those ancillaries. Now, with five empty seats, that aircraft perhaps is making a loss on that flight. So already, all you need is five passengers to to cause a little bit of stress within Ryanair because that's one flight that's now not profitable. If you see that on a larger scale and across the airline, across the network, then of course this is not going to be welcome news. 
And this is around the same time of the build-up to Brexit, which Michael O'Leary, the CEO of Ryanair, has been the most sceptical of. He's the most fearful of the effects and impacts of Brexit on his airline. And now he has to deal with this first. Yeah. Alex, you know, we, we've heard, and, and, and certainly Ryanair are putting out, as I say, one, one thing about, about rosters and everything, but we have heard that the pilots at Ryanair are disgruntled, that this is this is in the ether, this is in the air. I'm using all these great puns today. But tell me this, are the pilots at Ryanair treated vastly differently to pilots treated, or how the pilots are treated in, in other airlines? Is there a noticeable difference in terms of terms, pay, condition for Ryanair pilots? Well, there are, there are pros and cons. The, the pros are that with Ryanair, because they have, operate such an ambitious and such a busy frequency and schedule, pilots are able to build up their hours very fast, much faster than, say, on the likes of British Airways, who would probably roster you to fly perhaps two, maxim, maximum three flights yeah. a day, but it averages on around two. With Ryanair, you could be flying five flights a day, and, and that would really help building up your hours as a pilot. But in terms of conditions... It is widely known that Ryanair pilots are under more stress than others because of that frequency, because of the demand to have the aircraft turned around at the destination in 22 minutes at maximum. And that's everything, passengers off, passengers on, fuel and everything. So, And also with that comes a lot of pilots working on minimum rest. So they're not actually getting generous levels of rest and, and that's meeting the minimum requirement in some cases. However, it's not different to other, how other low-cost carriers operate. And where we're seeing reports that pilots are getting up and leaving Ryanair is because they are disgruntled for various reasons within the airline, perhaps poor okay. management of other areas, and, uh, and, so, and so they're leaving. OK, listen, my sincere thanks. That is Al- Alex, I'm going to mangle your name again. Alex Macheras, <laughs> aviation analyst, on the ongoing problems at Ryanair that, that, that are clearly uh, an, an issue and in fact a, a, an example in point is a text has just come in Kira we're thinking of booking a weekend away in December the flights are available to book on the Ryanair website can I take it for granted if they're still advertising these flights that they will definitely go ahead or is there still a chance they will cancel the flights that are being booked even now we can't answer that question and that's the truth of it isn't it uh, uh, if they do cancel them on you you clearly have rights but I think nobody can answer those questions currently at the moment now we're going to stay with something sort of uh, transporty although it is uh, something different to air travel. According to researchers at the University of Washington, it does not take computer software geniuses, genii, to disrupt a driverless car. All you need is a bit of pen and paper. To explain this now, I'm joined by Neil Briscoe, who's a freelance car journalist who contributes to the Irish Times and CompleteCar.ie, who's going to explain to us what the drawbacks may be of driverless cars. Neil, you're very welcome to High Noon. Hi there, how are you doing? I'm good. Listen, talk to me about this study that said that you could actually trick a driverless car fairly easily and make it make mistakes. Yeah, it, it, it's part of this research, as you say, done by the University of Washington that was, I suppose, so far with driverless cars, with, with driverless cars, with high-tech cars, with cars increasingly being controlled by computers. We've all been very concerned about this possibility of people maliciously getting into the car systems, uh, spiddling with the software changing the way things work, even taking them over entirely and causing them to malfunction. But what these researchers have, have done is they've basically gone back to basics and said, guys, you don't need to get into the computer at all. You just need to change what the computer's looking at because these cars, these uh, prototype autonomous cars, self-driving cars, use cameras as well as uh, radar, as well as laser scanning to look at the world around them. And it's how they understand the world around them. And one of the key issues is they look at road signs. So if you can change how that road sign looks, 
either by laying a completely new skin on top of it that changes, for instance, a don't enter sign to a turn right sign, just you know, with a, a printer and some sticky tape, uh, or if you just alter the shape of the sign or alter the color scheme ever so slightly, the camera that reads it can't understand what's going on and it causes the car to either make a wrong decision or just come to a complete halt and make no decision at all because it's become confused. Yeah, and it is the case that it, it may not even be something as... Uh, you know, that's how, when I was reading that report myself, I was kind of going, oh, that's not very likely, is it though? But people do perform pranks. People, you know, there's a, there's a road sign actually quite near our studios here where the, where the do not turn left sign has been turned around uh, and so it faces the wrong way. So I know the way the roads work around here so I wouldn't take a wrong turn based on it. But somebody else might because they've actually, some some joker has, has, has flipped the sign. So, so those kinds of things do happen on roadsides, don't they? Uh, indeed, they do. They happen in all sorts of reasons because the, I mean, the point of a lot of so-called hacking is not necessarily for profit. It's not necessarily to commit major crimes. Yeah, it's a lot not of malicious. Time it's just simply no, a lot of times, no, it's malicious, but it's in the sense of having a bit of fun, having a bit of crack, messing with stuff. Um, Neil, there was, was that can be done. There was something else actually recently uh, that, that, that I think it was you who pointed out that what happens when the, the driverless car spots maybe on the motorway, a road sign saying 50 kilometres an hour on a, on a slip road beside you, but it's actually indicating that you're, you know, if you're turning left off on this exit, you might have a, a to reduce your speed. But if you're driving along at 120 kilometres on the motorway and that your driverless car picks up this 50k road sign to the left of you, that your car could suddenly slam on the brakes in traffic or whatever that you, you know, that would be very unexpected for other cars. Are they not sophisticated enough to to yet match the eyes and ears of an actual driver? Definitely not. Um, And I I think there may even be something of a question mark as to how sophisticated they can ever be. Of course, it's a a two-way system in the sense of uh, the system has to be very clever, the the computer has to be very clever, the camera has to be very clever. Also, your road signage needs to be extremely clear, precise, and match exactly what it's supposed to be. That's not always the case. In a lot of countries, it's certainly not always the case in Ireland. Yeah, this thing of the car picking up a speed limit on an off-ramp, that actually has happened to me in a car with an active cruise control system that uses a camera to read road signs. As you say, it spotted a 50k limit off to the left, thought that I was supposed to be doing 50k when in fact I was supposed to be doing 120 and it was like someone had thrown an anchor out of the back of the car. Yeah, yeah, and that, that is of concern. Are there other issues with driverless cars that the likes of your average punter wouldn't have ne- necessarily thought of as and they might be thinking oh I could get a driverless car this sounds great I'll get one of those fancy things you know down the line or whatever but but are there things we haven't considered around this as well other issues well I suppose it comes back to that classic Donald Rumsfeld there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns yeah. we, we simply don't know which is why there is so much money being poured into research and development right now that uh, the cars are being developed by you know in giants like Google like Ford like General Motors like BMW no one knows exactly where this is going to go. There is uh, a presumption that there is a demand or there will be a demand for this kind of technology. We actually don't really know is the short version. We also don't know ultimately how expensive it's going to be in the long or short term or or, or how long it will really take to come to fruition. There's a, a lot of talk about, oh, driverless cars will be here by 2020 or 2025. Yeah, actually, very soon. That's, that's pretty unlikely. There okay. will be some form of partial autonomy which will become very common by then, such as these adaptive cruise control systems that can also keep you in lane on the motorway and on major roads, but fully autonomous, completely robotized cars, 
that could take a significant amount longer yet. What, Neil, what do you think, just kind of lastly, what do you think or why do you think that there has been so much obsessing over driverless cars lately? They've been in the news almost constantly for about the last 18 months with various stories about them, them crashing, them not being suitable, them being suitable. Or as you say, the fact that they're going to be, we're all going to be driving one in about six months. All of that kind of stuff. What's the obsession? There was no mention of driverless cars other than maybe a science fiction up until relatively recently. And now people are talking about them like they are almost upon us. Well, I suppose it's the case of it's become a thing, it's gone from being a thing that maybe we could do to actually, yeah, we can do. The technology is there. You can create a driverless car right now that can go out on the street to drive itself. How successful it would be at doing so is up for a debate. How expensive it would be to do that is an absolutely astronomical figure, which is why there aren't any for sale in dealerships right now, because even if you put one in there, no one could afford them. It is the coming thing, though. It's the way the technology has led us. Again, I, I come back to the point of exactly how popular they will be. We just simply don't know. The likelihood is very popular because 99% of people aren't like me. They don't care about their cars. They don't, they don't enthuse about yes. driving. They just want to get in something that's going to get them to work, get them home again, and it's for it to be utterly painless and simple. Yeah. So that is where the assumption is coming from. Okay. Listen, my sincere thanks. That is Neil Briscoe, freelance car journalist of the Irish Times and completecar.ie. On the ongoing discussions on driverless cars, uh, maybe they won't be around quite as soon as perhaps we have led to be, belie- led to be believed. Is that bad grammar? Um, do stay tuned. This is Kira Kelly. This is High Noon, and we have loads more coming up after this. I know. This is News Talk. Andre, what do you reckon about that uh, hand washing thing? 20% don't wash at all and 80% don't wash properly. Does that mean nobody washes their hands properly? 80%. Yeah, 80% of us of people apparently don't wash their hands properly and one in five don't wash them at all when they go to the toilets. Now, I have to say, I didn't realise that 20 seconds was the golden rule. I just want to be very clear about this. <laughs> I do wash my hands. Um, I'm actually a bit OCD about hand washing, but um, it seems like a lot. I heard actually somebody saying today that sort of their, um, their kind of practice or the gauge they use is that, you know, the the happy birthday song you sing apparently you should sing that twice while ah, you're washing your hands okay good there good, you go. good, good to a know golden but, but uh, yeah that's a lot of people not washing their hands properly let us know 53106 do you wash your hands are you one of the 20% that never wash your hands you just don't believe in it for some reason are you one of the 80% that just don't wash it properly do you ever sing happy birthday twice 53106 let me know it's kind of grim thinking about everybody with unclean hands. Um, this is Kira Kelly. This is High Noon and we've loads coming up for you in the next hour, including the great ageism debate. Are we discriminating against people from both ends of the age spectrum? But obviously people are getting in touch with us already. And just back to what we were talking about earlier in the programme on the uh, Arachthus Committee on the Eighth Amendment. Someone has texted and said, when will the so-called Citizens Assembly be seen for what it really is? A subversion of democracy and a politician's avoidance of awkward decisions. Are we to assume that this fake gathering signals the opinions of the, the nation? Um, that's probably quite hard in Citizens' Assembly. I do think that in fairness to them, they worked very hard. They gave their time. It was loads of weekends away from families and away from home life and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think they did pour with great uh, intent and attention over all the details of what was to be discussed. Um, I do agree with you. It probably was cowardice and, and kicking of cans by politicians. Uh, although small wonder, it's a very polarising issue and 
politicians are afraid of their life. Their main their main thing in life is to get elected, isn't it? It's not really about anything else. Let me know what you think. 53106, Citizens Assembly, uh, a load of old nonsense or fair play to them because I think they did probably a hard job. That would be my, my position on it. But anyway, and let us know what you think about anything else too because we do love to hear from you. Now, a female US Marine this week became the first woman to complete the Corps' notoriously rigorous training course for infantry officers. Many women serve in the Marines and in also other branches of the American Armed Forces. But the woman, who has requested that her name won't be released, is the first to make it through the Marine Corps' 13-week infantry officer training course, which apparently is incredibly rigorous. And joining me to discuss the role of women in the military in general and what it means to be an infantry officer is security analyst and ex-military man himself, Tom Clonan. Tom, you're very welcome to High Noon. Hi, Kira. How are you? Tell me this, first of all, before we broaden it out to the role of women in the military, for people like me who don't know enough about soldiering, an infantry officer, does this mean that this woman would be involved in a war situation in hand-to-hand combat, in fighting actually, you know, blow for blow with other people? Is that what this means? As an infantry officer, if, if you're in hand-to-hand combat, something's gone wrong. Okay. Basically. Um, so not to, not to be flippant. No, uh, no, but, so, I, but that's So, so basically, it's, it's the most basic building block of the infantry um, sort of, uh, what would you call it, toolkit, is the platoon. It's the smallest unit that an officer would command. And basically, under the US military's definition, uh, combat is to close with and destroy the enemy. Um, But within um, uh, an infantry platoon, the weapons that are organic to that platoon would be effective out to about five or six hundred metres. So it would be very, very unusual that you would find yourself in a position where you're involved in, you know, eye to eye, hand to hand combat, because uh, unfortunately, conventional combat now is is mechanised to to a very large extent. it's it's a very interesting development. I mean, you, the women have been involved in the US military in ever increasing numbers since the 1970s. And, and the, the US military uh, have been kind of leaders in this regard. Uh, they were forced into this reluctantly with the enactment of uh, equality legislation in the States in the in the early 70s. Um, but what the US military have discovered is that uh, women actually are very, make for very, very effective soldiers, uh, aircrew, pilots, uh, sailors. Uh, a lot of it is down to the way in which women are socialised. Um, so uh, in a received sense, women are multitaskers. So, you know, uh, the US Air Force have discovered that women will fly the plane, deploy the weapons, hit the right target and communicate with one another uh, without crashing the plane or hitting the wrong target. So, in fact, I know for myself the, the research uh, within the US Air Force and the Royal Air Force um, that women are such good pilots that it, it's reckoned that by the end of this century, and the air war will be entirely female. Uh, are you saying, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, are you saying women are better pilots than men? And I'm not the, trying to put words in your mouth. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I, I don't really like flying, uh, but when I hop on Aer Lingus or, uh, well, I, I don't know if you can hop on Ryanair anymore. But <laughs> don't when mention I, the war. I, maybe they need <laughs> a woman. Uh, maybe they need a good woman at the helm to sort that out. But, um, you know, if I hop on Aer Lingus and I look into the cockpit and if I see a woman in the cockpit, I'm very reassured because I know we're going to get to the, our destination. Really, that's extremely interesting. So yeah. what you're saying is, is that women are good uh, in terms of they're obviously good at pilots, they're good at strategy, they're good at multitasking. So they, they are skilled. And is the fact that you know, I showed my own ignorance there talking about hand-to-hand combat. Is the fact that hand-to-hand combat is largely gone or all but gone, does that mean that women can play a greater role in the military? Because obviously, you know, if you and I started punching the head off each other here, you'd probably win. I, I, I'm smaller and weaker and that's true of most women. Yeah, But but, but that's you, not really an issue anymore. Yeah, is that but, what you're but, saying? But I mean, like in, in combat, you, you'd be armed. 
And uh, if you were 100 metres away, Kira, with a weapon, I would make myself scarce <laughs> pretty quickly. No, look, there's a huge amount of mythology uh, about combat. And, and the military have always internationally been very careful to preserve the notion that it's a kind of a hyper-masculine space and that it validates men's masculinity. And that's how you fool hapless young men like myself <laughs> into, into what is essentially a, a death profession. And it's it's... As a workplace, I mean, it is. It's, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was it was great. But uh, when you actually drill down into it and look at the characteristics that are required for military service, which are compliance, conformity, passivity, uh, pro-social aggression, which is rule enforcement, uh, conservatism, they're all characteristics which are... Now, let me be very clear about this, that in the received sense are characterised as feminine characteristics. So in actual fact, women because of the way in which they're socialised, really uh, do well in the military. They gravitate towards leadership roles. Look, the United States military is not a liberal feminist experiment. No. But they're taking women in, in in their thousands because they know that women are really good uh, at command and control. They gravitate towards leadership roles. They absolutely excel in the air, at sea, on land. The the research carried out by the Israelis, the British, the uh, US military show that what they call gender integrated units outperform all male units every time. No question. And again, if you look back at the history of conflict, uh, you know, you look at the partisans in, in the former Yugoslavia, they defeated the, the, the Wehrmacht, the, the Waffen SS. Look at you the know. Kurds. Look at uh, the female yeah, Kurds. So in other words, if, it's like anything in life. If you want to win the war, if you want to get that contract, if you want to uh, have a good hospital, then you have to be diverse. You've got to have men and women. And women are the majority in the population. It's They're 51% of the population. This this woman's achievement of, you know, uh, passing through the this platoon commander's battle course or the, the infantry commander's course, uh, you know, she's, she's the first. There'll, there'll be many more to follow. And, and the frightening thing, I was Winston Churchill, he, once he was on a tour of uh, African countries and he was given a demonstration of martial arts by uh, one of the despots down there. He, and they were all women. And he said afterwards, you know, women are uh, kept out of the army, not to spare them from the horrors of conflict, but to spare men from the horror of armed women. (laughs) <laughs> which is a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a, a backwards compliment. It's 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 very well. In fairness, back in the day, the Celts and all apparently half the fighters were women. Women women were warriors and all that kind of stuff. But what you've just said there is really interesting. You've said that the army is perceived to be macho and manly and all that, but actually the characteristics that you need to be a good soldier or passivity and all these things and that's what a good soldier yeah, and, actually has. And, and to You've be also good, said that that's perceived as a female characteristic but yet it's, it's yeah, men who well, seem I mean, to have been my, my working own, well within it. I, my own personal belief that all of these they're just human characteristics yes. so I wouldn't assign them as being inherently feminine or masculine and I think um, the greater your communications repertoire the greater your skill set over what are described as feminine or masculine, the more uh, complex you are, the more successful you are, the more diverse an organisation, the more successful it will be. Uh, One of the interesting things uh, about women in the the military um, is the the manner in which, like, for example, in the Gulf War, 43,000 women fought in Gulf War One. This is Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. and Desert Shield, and the, the military had the U.S. military had this thing called the Direct Combat Probability Code, the DCPC, and based on that algorithm, women were denied access to certain uh, combat appointments. But in Desert Storm, and since then, with asymmetric warfare, uh, everybody is in the proximity of of the threat, as we call it. So they've just women have by a process of osmosis, but. 
for purely utilitarian reasons the, the US military have promoted women and are taking him in in those numbers. In relation to flight, one of the interesting things is that um, women, because of average differences between men and women in distribution of body fat and muscle, women are far better able to withstand G-forces <clears throat> than men. So the latest generations of uh, fast jet aircraft and fighter jets that actually require p- computer programs to fly them, uh, w- women just, you know, they, they're able to do it. They're able to fly them, uh, fire the weapon systems, whereas men, you know, the big, strong, big jocks, they can't do it. What was very interesting, and you may or may not have ever seen it, there was a, a report and it was suppressed back in the 50s and 60s when they were first, NASA was first training astronauts uh, for the space programme that women, exactly as you said, different uh, body fat, different body water components, different body weight, different size and also this stuff, as you pointed out, to do with strategy and multitasking and all the kind of stuff. Women outperformed men as astronauts across the board. So based on the success of the trials of astronauts, all of the space programs initially should have been all female, but because being an astronaut and going where no man had gone before, and you know, you know, giant step for mankind, they felt they couldn't send women, so they sent all male teams, despite mm. the fact that the women had outperformed them. Which just, you know, we talk about sexism in society and all that kind of stuff, but it just goes to show you <laughs> just how far people are willing to take oh, gender yeah, but, bias. But but the you know the. the the, the discourse is very, very strong. Like the, the reality of women's involvement in combat is has been suppressed. And, you know, uh, y- you and I spoke last year in Stevens Green at the commemoration yeah. ceremonies. And, you know, my grandmother uh, fought in the War of Independence. She was a school teacher by day, an arsonist by night. Um, and, and we know, for example, that let, let's say Vietnam, which is where the US Marine Corps, we were talking about them, you know, that was their you know, 66,000 US troops were killed in Vietnam by the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. One third of the North Vietnamese Army was female. Amazing. One third. So you know, you're looking at a US military, practically all male at that point, was defeated by a gender integrated uh, organisation. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm a liberal feminist. In other words, I see the military as a legitimate and valid social institution. I know there are radical feminists listening to this who say women should have no part in this patriarchal construct of the use of force and the projection of force and so on. But as a pragmatist and, and as a realist like the US military, you can see um, that they are valued. And one of the interesting things, Kira, is that the US military engineers the workplace so that they can harness or exploit women. So, for example, I spoke to US Air Force pilots whose children were put in creches in Germany. The childcare was provided so that they could fly combat in Iraq. And uh, one of those ladies, I met her down in in, uh, in Shannon Airport. Um, she told me that her aircraft was hit by a shoulder launch missile in the, the last final assault on, on Baghdad. The missile didn't detonate, but it damaged the aircraft to such extent that she was finding it really hard to control it. She was 27 years old. She had just done her hair and her makeup for this interview. And she explained to me that she had to figure out how to fly the aircraft again from scratch. And she was at low altitude. She managed to gain altitude. And she said, I had an epiphany. And I thought, oh, she's going to tell me she was thinking about of her kids in the crash yeah. in Germany and what am I doing here? And she said, I realised I had enough fuel to go back and kill that mother hugger. <laughs> now, she used a different phrase and she said, and that's what I did. So, look, women, um, as, as you and I both know, when uh, they're given the opportunity, we have a lot of preconceived when, notions. when difference yes. is, is recognised but not seen as a deficit and when we engineer and support, then we harness the, the qualities and the potential of all of our citizens. But briefly, briefly, Tom, I've, like, lots of people are getting in touch with stuff and I can't, won't get to all of these texts, but, but Paul says, 
do, and I don't think maybe he knows what, what your background is, but he says, do you actually believe this guy? The military have had to reduce the physical requirements for women time and time again. This guy is living in cloud cuckoo land. If ladies want to go out and get shot up, let them. Men have been doing it for thousands of years. Is that true that women have to set a lower bar for women in the well, military? See, but guys like him will accept that children can be soldiers. And a guy like him will accept that a 14-year-old boy with, a, with an automatic weapon is a threat. But for some reason, he, uh, cognitive dissonance, uh, you know, he, he can't see that a, a 23-year-old woman <laughs> with a PhD with a weapon is, is a far more dangerous uh, prospect. Look, there are thousands of men in cemeteries all around the world who are killed by, by women oh, in combat. Ask yeah. them, dig them up and ask them. La- last question for you, Tom, and this one's from Sean. Speaking from experience, being in the Infantry Corps specifically involves moving on foot, being in stressful conditions, carrying very heavy equipment, women in all corps play an equitable role but they are generally not suited to the physical demands of the infantry corps absolute nonsense if you look at women around the world women do all the heavy lifting they're the women who you know the women are the ones who carry the water to the well and who do all the the heavy manual labour in societies all around the world it's a complete nonsense complete myth and modern uh, infantry webbing is designed to carry the weight bear the load across the hips and that's where women do it and that's what women are best at if you look at the aerobic endurance of women their ability to carry loads their ability to withstand pain they're far superior in every respect men what you're hearing there is just mythology bullshit you know have a look at the record and see the reality of women's performance in combat the German SAS their first standing operating procedure is shoot the women first women always gravitate towards leadership roles if you if you encounter women in a combat situation their standard operating procedure number one is shoot the women first they're the greatest threat there you are. You heard it. You didn't hear it from me. You heard it from Tom Clonan, security analyst on that first woman infantry officer in the US Marines, but also on women in general in the military. Maybe it's not what you think. And women on air, Kira. And, and women on air. Oh, I like More I, of it, please. More <laughs> of it. Absolutely. Listen, coming up after this, two Galway sisters breaking all the stigmas around disability. Stay tuned. Hi, now. This is News Talk. Now, welcome back to High Noon with me, Kira Kelly. My next two guests have created a successful business by breaking down the stigmas associated with wheelchairs. And to tell me more about their product and how it came about, I'm joined by Elva and Izzy Keane from Galway. Girls, you guys are, are, are the pair behind Izzy's Wheels. We are, we are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the programme. Alva, can I come to you first of all, if you don't mind? You're the designer, and, and for people who don't know what, what Izzy's wheels are, you bespoke and custom design wheelchairs so that they are more, I suppose, reflective of the person in the wheelchair, that they're not just a bit of what looks like medical kit. They're more about personality, and if you're going to sit in it all the time, they, they kind of reflect who you are. How did you get that idea? Uh, well, the idea was inspired by a college project, actually. So I was in uh, NCAD and I studied visual communications. And for my final year project, I came up with Izzy Wheels. And it was inspired by my sister Isabel, who is a wheelchair user. And growing up, Isabel found it very frustrating that she spent all of her time in a wheelchair, but it didn't reflect her personality. And her wheelchair was the first thing that people noticed about her, but it wasn't a reflection of her or her personality at all. So I came up with Izzy Wheels and this was a range of customizable wheel covers for your wheelchair. So the idea is that you could match your wheels to go with your different outfits and really, you know, make a statement about yourself and 
make your wheelchair look look good. And so you were doing that as a project in college. Did you ever think that it would spawn a business or did you just think, well, God, you know, I've got a deadline. I've got to put something in. This is something I'd feel good about because of my sister. But did you realise that it was going to become your job after college? No, I didn't realise. I knew from the very beginning that I really loved doing it and it attracted loads of positive attention from the very beginning. But I didn't think that it was going to become a business. But as soon as I started doing Wheels for Izzy, then say her friends, they all were asking, you know, where can I get these and could your sister make me some? So I set up an online store and straight away we started getting orders from all over the world. So it just kind of... One thing led to another kind of grew, and it grew. Grew organically. It did. So in other words, you were making stuff for Izzy. It was part of a project, but obviously Izzy was benefiting from getting the covers. I'm going yes. to come to Izzy now in a sec. But mm-hmm. but you you were giving them to her and then her mates were going, I'd like a bit of that too. My wheelchair is really boring. Can you make one for me? And it just literally went from there. Yeah, exactly. Ah, fantastic. Izzy, I'm, I'm delighted you're Izzy. I have Izzy Keen on, on the line with me too. And Izzy, You've been in a wheelchair since you were very young, isn't that right? Since birth from yeah. spina bifida. And, and yeah. can you just tell us a little bit about what that means to a young person? Like, did you feel when you met people that they treated you differently because you were in a wheelchair? Okay, well, uh, as Alva already mentioned, a wheelchair is the first thing that a person notices about you when they meet you for the first time. A lot of the time, people assume that this is, you know, a negative thing. But my wheelchair is absolutely wonderful it helps me do literally everything I do in a day so I want to be I want to be able to you know show people that they don't have to be afraid to mention it and that it's a wonderful thing and I want um, to be able to start a conversation a positive conversation around my wheelchair because it's part of who I am so I like when people are asking me questions about myself so why wouldn't I be and happy to answer questions about my wheelchair. So it really gave people a way of approaching me and um, talking about my wheelchair in a positive way that got rid of any awkwardness that may have been there already. Okay. You like to view your wheelchair as a positive because it, it enables you to do all the stuff that you wouldn't be able to do without it. Did, did, did you feel, though, that it looked inadequate in some way? Was, did, did you look at it and kind of go, oh, it's boring looking? I have seen people put mm. stickers and stuff on wheelchairs. Do you know what I mean? I've seen people do stuff with the spokes, like themselves, like DIY jobs, not, not, nothing like Izzy's wheels. But obviously yeah. people did want to, in some way, claim the wheelchair and individual visualize it. Absolutely. Were you doing uh, that before this? I, yes. Um, from as long as I can remember, as long as I've had a chair, I've always wanted to decorate my chair. Like I used to have, as you said, um, little stickers all over it. And like I always wanted to draw positive attention to it. But until now, um, I haven't been able to uh, have something that I could use on a daily basis because, you know, if you attach flowers to your chair or whatever, they eventually look a bit worse for wear. Yeah, but with Izzy Wheels, um, they are completely durable and they are able to withstand all the bad weather and all the rest. <laughs> I, I, I was asking Alva whether or not she ever envisaged that she was going to be running a business based around this. I'm going to ask you something yeah. similar. Did you ever en- envisage Izzy that you would become a brand ambassador for something about kind of positivity around wheelchairs? Did you ever see that as, as something you'd like to have gotten involved in? I definitely always saw it as something I'd like to get involved in. But, um, you know, being able to get involved in it, I suppose, is a different story altogether. You know, being able to use my disability to, you know, help other people and get the word out there to people with disabilities or, you know, able-bodied people alike that um, disabilities aren't something to be ashamed of is 
you know, is amazing. And Izzy Wheels is a perfect platform for me to be able to, you know, convey this message. You guys obviously seem to get on very well. Not every, not all sisters could work together and run a business. <laughs> Has this brought you guys closer together? This this I mean, it's a big deal what you're doing. You're running a family business, but it's a family business based on aspects of your own family and and, and highlighting aspects of your own family. Has has this been an easy thing to to work together on this, or have there has it had its moments? Uh, no, like me and Isabel have always gotten on really well, and we also play very different roles in the business. Like, so there's no, I suppose, getting each other's way. And we love hanging out anyways. And we always have a good time. So we're very much a duo in this. Would you agree with that, Izzy? <laughs> I would, of course. I would, of course. <laughs> Alva, where to now for Izzy's Wheels? Obviously, it's up and running. People can buy it online. And we'll talk about that in just a sec. But but is it is it a growth industry? Do you have, have plans to expand or, or, or branch into different things? Or, or, or where's Izzy's Wheels off to next? Well, it started off as, you know, something between me and my sister. So the designs were quite girly. And then we, you know, we're always trying to try and do new things and do new cool things. So that's when we brought on other designers from around Ireland and then around the world to really broaden out the different types of designs that we do have. So, you know, with every new collection, we're kind of appealing for more and more different types of wheelchair users. So we have a new collection coming out now in a few weeks, which is the Orla Kylie collection. No way. Yeah. So Orla Kylie, obviously, like a really famous yeah. Irish print designer um, and a fashion designer. So we're going to, you know, really get more fashion designers on board and, you know, big names um, to appeal for, you know, this isn't for kids. This isn't just for girls. We want to appeal for women as well. But also we don't want to stop there. We also want to have a collection that'll appeal to guys as well, because we don't want to leave anybody out in this. So we're constantly going to be growing to different types of designs that we do have to appeal to more and more people. And eventually what we want to do is build out a fashion brand for wheelchair users. Because say for a wheelchair user, going into town, going shopping, it is a different experience because you can go into a shop and not everything can fit you. You can really like something, but it mightn't fit you. And that's very, very frustrating. So Izzy Wheels is going to be a fashion brand for wheelchair users where everything there is made specially for them, with them in mind and with them considered. Um, so we really want to build this really, really amazing fashion brand. So Izzy, were you involved in the designs yourself? Did you have sort of set ideas about what you wanted for your wheelchair? Um, to be honest now, um, Alva's always been the, you know, the artistic <laughs> You're one. You're very and the... diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so um, I've always kind of left it to her. But, you know, obviously we grew up together. So I know that she knows what I like. So I wasn't, that wasn't really um, something that I was nervous of. Uh, so I left it to her and I was always very happy with the outcome. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, well, that's all that counts. Um, Alva, where, for people, there are people going to be listening who, who either are in a wheelchair or, or have a family member or a friend in a wheelchair and might want to buy these. How do people go about getting them? Are they in shops or is it all online? So we're all online. So you can buy Easy Wheels directly from us on izzywheels.com we're also uh, on Instagram at izzywheels and uh, Facebook and Twitter at izzywheels so in other words if you if you just stick izzywheels into Google you're going to get various points of access to get to you yeah exactly. can I ask you are they expensive the covers are they are they how, ballparky how much would they set somebody back if they were if they wanted to buy a set so it's 139 euro for a pair and that pair will then last you because they're waterproof scratch proof and the idea is that, you know, they're the same price as a new handbag or a new coat. Okay, so so they're not uh, 139 euros, that's that's fair enough, but but they're not 
something that you have to take off and, and, and wash them or whatever. They're not like that. They are quite durable for no, the weather. No, absolutely Because we're such not. bad weather. Absolutely. So you can just give them like a wipe down with soap and water. They're very easy to clean. Izzy, I, I've asked Alva what next for her. Where, where is Izzy Wheels going to take her? And obviously she's branching out and is doing all that kind of stuff. What about mm-hmm. you? I mean, I know you're the brand ambassador, but uh, yeah. where do you see the next couple of years taking? Are you going to stay in business or, or do you have, have different hopes and dreams for yourself? Well, um, definitely I can see the business, you know, um, flourishing. So, um, you know, I, I definitely intend on um, staying very much involved in it because it's so exciting and so much fun to work with your sister. Um, well, um, for me as well, I'm also in um, college at the moment. So that's my other um, project, I suppose. What What are you studying? Um, I'm studying um, French and sociology and politics. Ah, so who knows what the future may may, may hold for for That's you it. yourself? I would <laughs> yes. say with, with the pair of you, anything is probably possible. Listen, my sincere <laughs> thanks. That is Alva and Izzy Keane of Izzy Wheels talking to us about what sounds like a really cool idea. Have you won any awards for this? Uh, yeah, we've actually won seven awards this year. <laughs> I kind so I thought good. I thought you might have. It sounds like a brilliant idea, and of course, Izzy's Wheels are available online across all the social media platforms and on izzywheels.com High Noon This is News Talk And you're very welcome back to High Noon with Kira Kelly here on News Talk Lots and lots of you getting in touch Please keep getting in touch We love to hear from you Uh, One of our texters says here with regard to what Tom Clonan was saying earlier about women in the military, you never see women on building sites because they can't handle the heavy work. Tom would refute that greatly. Um, and I think he makes a very good point about women in Africa and stuff. They handle all the manual work. And uh, someone else says here, Izzy's wheels, what a great story for a Friday. Happy Friday, everyone. And yes, you're absolutely right. Those two girls, completely inspirational and really young and so entrepreneurial and just so great, just just so fantastic. Now, but speaking of young people, we're going to be talking about age now. This week, the government put forward a proposal to hold a referendum, one of the many referendums, on the legal age to vote, asking the public about whether or not they want to lower the age of voting from 18 to 16 ye- years of age. I should point out that Michael McDougall has said this is pure gimmickry and that if you're 16 years of age and you're not old enough to enter a legal contract of law, you're not old enough to uh, go into a public house, you're not old enough, what else did he say, you're not old enough to... Uh, do lots of things at 16 but he also said if asylum seekers at 16 are counted as children we can't give children a vote so he says it's pure gimmickry so that's on one end of the scale but on the other end of the scale the BBC this week has said that its senior staff are going to be put in touch with the younger generation by giving them their own youth members to advise them because they feel that their senior staff their people in their 40s and 50s and 60s who work in the organisation are out of touch Um, and We're asking now today, how significant a role, first of all, should young people be playing in decision makers in our society? What what, what do we think about that? But also, is ageism alive and well and cutting both ways? Are we in danger of excluding young people and saying that they are not entitled to vote or or to have a role in our society, but also older people that are we saying that they're not entitled to, to, to have their opinions because society has moved on and they need to get with it. And are we really in danger of turning ourselves into a society where we're discriminating against both older and younger adults uh, because we think us in the middle know best. And to discuss this now, I'm joined by two wonderful people. I'm joined by Harry McCann, who is of the Digital Youth Council, and Sabina Brennan, of course, of this 
Parish, but also of Trinity Brain Health. Welcome to the programme, both of you. Hi, Kira. Hi. I'm going to come to you first, if that's OK, Harry. Yep. What, what do you think about the idea of 16 year olds? Can I ask you first of all how old you are? I'm 19. You're 19. So how, what do you, so three years ago, what would you have felt if someone said to you, you have the vote now? Would you have felt capable? Would you have felt that was reasonable? What do you reckon about this idea? Yeah, so I still haven't actually cast a vote yet. Um, since I turned 18, I haven't had the opportunity. By the sounds of things, next year I won't leave a polling booth. Uh, there's going to be f- a few of them anyway. Um, I think 16-year-olds are more than capable of voting. I think uh, it's unfair to say anything different. I don't think that because you can't tr- consume alcohol means that you can't cast your vote in an election. I think Ireland needs young people to shape the future. I think we keep talking about how young people need to be, you know, they're our future and whatever else. But the future is happening now and the decisions that will affect our future are happening now. And I think there's plenty of 16-year-olds out there and 17-year-olds who are more than capable of voting and participating. And it's been seen around Europe. The Scottish election, the 2014 referendum had 16 and 17-year-olds voting and there was a 75% turnout for that cohort. It shows that they're willing to get involved and they want to make a change and they want to make a difference. I have to say, one of the things that we saw in the marriage equality referendum here was people voting in school uniforms, which... I found really moving for some reason. I found it really powerful as, as an image that young people who were still at school were exercising their democratic rights. Obviously, they were 18, but but I, I still found it amazing. One of the things I thought was quite interesting about the marriage referendum was those, we, we did mobilise a young vote. We've mobilised a, a vote from the diaspora as well. And we had such an interesting uh, demographic around the people who voted in that election. Yet, we didn't manage to pass the referendum on reducing the age that a president needed to be down to 21. Uh, I, I I hold up my hand and say I voted that we should have presidents who were allowed to be presidents at 21. I can see no reason why you couldn't be a good president at 21. Um, but one of the things, Harry, that Michael McDougall has said is, well, you're, if you're not allowed to do this, this and this at 16, why are you allowed to vote? Because we're treating you as an adult. I take his point, although mm. I, yeah. I disagree with him because I actually think that we could let 16-year-olds vote. But if we can let 16-year-olds vote, should we be allowed doing them to do other things as well? Should we be teach, treating them rather as adults in general? Yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't know what makes me more of an adult on the 18th of September than well, two years ago than I was on the 19th of September. You know, I, I turned 18 one day, I was 17 the day before. Does that mean I'm more ready to have a drink on the 19th than I was on the 18th? I think it's a bit silly, but I do I do agree with what he's saying. Of course, you know, there is points and in fairness, it's fair what he's saying, but it is a bit silly to compare them all and you can't put the same hat on all of them. I think you have to look at each situation individually. I don't think a 16-year-old should be allowed going to a pub, but I do believe they should be able to go and vote. I think you have to look at the situation. The situation is that all these policies are being made, there's referendums coming left, right and centre, and it's about our future. And it really needs to be the situation where we're looking and saying, do we want young people to shape the future of Ireland or do we want to leave it to the people who are already there and continue to make decisions for us? And I think it's a good opportunity to start now. I, 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 I'm not arguing because I actually think as well the younger people start to vote, the more likely that they will vote and exercise their democratic right to vote. And if people yeah. don't vote, we don't get a true representation about uh, what our, I suppose our society thinks on things at all. I'd like to bring you in here, Sabina. Sabina, talk to me a little bit about the, the other end of the spectrum, what we're also talking about today, reverse ageism this was well they're both ageism but ageism now against older people the BBC has said in an attempt to hang on to its youth market which it's not hanging on to they're losing young viewers and listeners that they need to kind of (laughs) make their older staff more with it by giving them a youth mentor is that a reasonable thing to do to move with the times or do you think that's vaguely insulting I think 
reverse mentoring is what it's called because we we've all come across where you know you get an older mentor to you know and through their experience they help you along um i wouldn't be a fan of either way for me what i think works actually is mutual mentoring um and and that's where you get rid of the the ageism aspect of it because uh, you acknowledge that both um people involved in the mentoring process have something to uh, gain from this the 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 communication and something to contribute to the communication. So um, that particular article, what I just didn't like was it was it was about reverse mentoring, bringing in under 30s to teach older people what it was, what it's like to be uh, under 30. Um, are, are we in danger, Sabina, of, you know, l- 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 to, to broaden this out, OK? In society, people who grew up in different eras will have a different set of values, a different set of mores, a different set of ideals and ideas and all that kind of stuff because we grow up as a product of our time. Now, we do evolve over the course of our life and if we adapt and change and continue to interact with people of all ages, we we may establish different ideas than the ones we had in our youth. But largely, I think it is is true to say that somebody in their 70s doesn't necessarily think the exact same as somebody in their 30s. And we see that. And you often hear people say this when they're talking to their parents, their aged parents. Young adults will say, Mum, Dad, you can't say that. And that's the thing you hear people saying a lot. Are we in danger of something here that we think people who are older, for example, or indeed people who are younger, don't have as much right to an opinion because that opinion doesn't kind of Conform. Conform to the consensus of the hegemony of the middle-aged, middle-class establishment. Well, you see, the thing is, um, to group any bunch of people by their age is ageism. Yeah. So it, it ageism applies all directions. It's, a, it's about a prejudice based on age and it's about making pres- assumptions based on age. So l- like Harry just said earlier, all 16 year olds aren't the same, but there's a general level of maturity. And actually, I would say um, cold cognition at the age of 60, uh, 16 in terms of voting. Um, that's where you have time to deliberate over something and make a decision which would apply in the instance of, of voting. That is probably well developed and mature enough in most six in 16 year olds on average so in terms of voting however um, other issues where the decision um, requires you know hot decision making or, or, or involves a risk or you know and, and, and sudden thing even things like driving um, that that kind of hot cognition doesn't doesn't mature till a bit later you know and it involves frontal cortex and, and so and that's to do with impulsivity and all that's that stuff. to do with impulsivity and so I think you can take the context into account uh, as well as the age. Um, But sorry, going back to your point um, in terms of um, uh, bunching people together by their age. Um, And we do it both both extremes. Oh, those young people are all the same and, you know, they're all liberals and they're all this. But we know for a fact that they're not. And similarly, all old people aren't the same. Um, But yet we bunch old people into, into groups by their age. And the fact of the matter actually is that older people are more diverse less homogenous than younger people just by virtue of the fact that they've lived longer and had more diverse experiences. Um, That's, you know, that's just something, you know, a a fact of living. Um, But with regard to this BBC uh, thing that they were talking about, I mean, in fairness to the BBC, what they're interested in this is there. This was really in the context of talking about programming where they were aiming at an audience yeah. between yeah. 15 and 30. So um, I don't believe that it makes sense to bring in a bunch of, you know, on that age group 
to manage the whole programme. But I, I, I think it does make sense to have diversity and to have, I mean, you would always go out to see, well, what, who are your who are your demographic? You have to hear their voice in your programming. I, I think we need diversity in all things. Loads of people are getting in touch. This is, this is very uh, interesting. Um, someone here says, at 16, most of the people are on the left of the political spectrum, mainly because they are not contributing as much as people who are older and working full time. We'll be flooded with shinners and the rest of the loony left. What a mental idea. I'm going to throw that to you, Harry. Uh, here is one thing that I do think about voting. Voting should have consequences. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I don't believe that you should be allowed to vote in a general election if you don't live in the country, uh, because yeah. I think you should live with the consequences of your vote, so that you don't vote in a kind of a, an idealistic way. You should, you should have to live with the responsibility of who you vote. For. There is an argument that if you are 16 and you don't work and you don't pay tax that you would vote in a different way because you won't be directly affected by the consequences maybe of your voting because you're not an active member of the economy in terms of being a worker. Your parents might be and people who are older than you are. What would you say to somebody who would suggest that you won't be living with the consequences of your vote properly at the age of 16 the way you would at the age of 36? Yeah, I think you have to look at it as well, though. It might not affect you personally, but it affects your family. We all have families at home and my parents pay tax. And at the end of the day, it might not necessarily just affect me, but it does affect my family. And, you know, what affects my parents affects me. And I think it's a hugely important thing to say, because although 16-year-olds don't pay tax, they still are affected by how tax rates are done and how all of this works. You know, if there's a push on their family, there's a push on them. And it does work that way. And I think it's fair, only fair that we give them the opportunity to contribute on that. Uh, loads of people on the same topic here. Rob says uh, young people have, the, have to earn the right to vote. Well, we, how do you earn it? Just by growing up to 18. If they were let mm. vote, we'll be ruled again by Sinn Féin by paying higher taxes. <laughs> Sinn Féin, you have clearly this. a problem with your, your perception. People think of you as a very high tax regime <laughs> and that all young people will have to head off for Australia if that happens. So Sinn Féin are now driving us to Australia. Um, this, these are texts. We are not Mary suggesting this. Yeah, absolutely. But but coming back to, to to you on this, Sabina, what do you think about that? The fact that it is probably true that you know that whole you know if if a man isn't a socialist when he's young, he has no heart, and if he is a socialist when he's old, he has no head. Is it largely the case that we can expect a broader spectrum of of um, you know we we've had centrist governments for, for generations because we flip-flop between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Would we be likely to see a greater spectrum of voting if we allowed people to vote from a younger age up? Well, I, I'm kind of going to throw something out there because I think we need to learn from things like Brexit where people um, voted without actually having real knowledge about what they were actually voting for. Um, so I think what's actually a bigger issue than the age, and I would be quite comfortable letting people 16 vote, provided... <laughs> they know what they're voting about. And I don't just apply that line to 16 year olds. I think you can be 60. I can th- think you can be 70. I think you can be 40 and not actually understand what you're voting for or, or misunderstand what you're voting for. I'd yeah. love a test but ha- before you're I, voting I, I on something. I think you make a really good point. I think you make a really good point, Sabina, because a lot of people are texting and saying, but how would they know what they're voting on? There are 35 year olds and 42 year olds and 79 year olds who, who haven't a clue and uh, still have the vote. You're saying we have to make sure that they know what they're voting on. But that should be true of the whole election. And Absolutely. Yeah, That's and exactly it. discrimination. So, so to be honest, and, and, you know, we have a problem getting people out to vote. If we actually really want, you know, uh, votes that reflect society and not just the majority, this is a fundamental problem with democracy. And I'm not advocating anything else instead of democracy. But you have to recognize, for it to work properly, you have to recognize its flaws. And that can mean that the majority always wins. And as a consequence, minorities suffer. And the society, society that you end up with doesn't reflect and include 
include those people in minorities and it's very important that we that we have and that we do that um, and I just think you know there's there could be something to be said for you know that actually a compulsory voting that anybody on the they register have that in some places anyone who is on the register you must cast your vote and in order to cast your vote perhaps it's very simple you do it online you have to read certain things and actually show that you understand what you're voting on tick 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 then your ballot paper is released and you can vote and that to me I think would solve loads of problems not sure, should there be anger not, saying it but. sadly Harry not very many people seem to be in, vo- in favour of the 16 year old vote um, half of 16 year olds don't even know who the Taoiseach is what an absolute joke people PC crap. Uh, PJ says voting age, people should undergo an intelligence test before they are allowed to vote with a minimum score of 100. Look at Brexit, Trump and Fianna Fáil's rise in the polls. And that's when PJ, PJ, that's called fascism when you when, when you when you have to outrule people because they aren't clever enough to vote. Uh, and Stephen says most of the electorate are not fit to vote anyway, as most of the electorate have no knowledge of politics. Politics should be a mandatory subject. Same as Matt's Brexit and Trump again uh, prove that it's not about age but it's about political nous. Um, Kira, your argument is silly. 16 is too young to vote. Why not 15? Why not 14? Where should the cutoff be? And yeah. someone else here says if a 16-year-old cannot be considered to be responsible for their actions in the same way as an adult is in a court of law, how can they be considered responsible enough to vote? A child cannot be responsible enough to vote on issues that can deeply affect people's lives in a way they cannot comprehend. But you have to understand that these cutoffs that we we, cho- we choose, we simply choose them, they're arbitrary. We have just decided when childhood ends and when it begins. If you and I were born in another country, you know, we would be in maturity and adult in, in accordance with our bodies. And you and I as women would be having babies at 14 and 15 no I, but, Grim but thought. no no but but that's a different it's a different society so people forget that we've actually just cho- chosen these ages arbitrarily um, you know in a sense but you then take some science in and you take some experience in and you learn and understand when people have le- have have a capacity to understand complex thoughts Harry I have to say to you that when I was 16 um, I was in school obviously I think I was in fifth year so I was it would have been in fifth year I was very plugged into debating and stuff like that I really enjoyed it I'd say actually I was more interested in, in, in politics and stuff than I may have been in fact in my 20s and 30s when I was busy doing other things it, when you were in school because you're, you're the most recent to have left school did you think that there was an appetite for discussion around politics voting referendums elections and that kind of thing among your peers I think a lot of the comments you've just read out. Firstly, the reason a lot of sixteen-year-olds don't know who the T-shock is is because it, it's it's not their fault. They actually don't blame teenagers for not knowing who the T-shock is. I think that's an issue that we have. I think the biggest thing here is why that is it not their fault? Tell me because I don't think there's any education. When is when is it ever mentioned? I've been in school for oh, I, I'm only left. So I've only finished my leaving cert, and during the whole time of school, you hear odd bits and pieces in there. There's, but there's no political education. There's no real-world education there. So we could change that, couldn't we? We, we could, and I actually think this is an opportunity. I think it's a, an opportunity that we possibly will miss because if we have introduced voting at 16 we have the opportunity to introduce electric, uh, po- political education in and not just only inform 16 year olds about how to vote but in the long run it would inform our electorate a lot better there's a plenty of 25, 26, 27, 30 year olds who have no idea what they're voting for and pretty much just vote for Sinn Féin or whoever sounds funniest on the election. <laughs> Sinn Féin! <laughs> Sinn Féin! I almost feel I should be apologising yeah. to Sinn Féin today. We're getting no, quite the kicking. No, no offence to them, but I think, do you know, we no, have to look at no the way... Offense to no offence No, no offence to Sinn Féin, but I think we have to look at the way the country's moving forward. Our Taoiseach 
is a lot younger than the previous Taoiseachs have been. This country needs to move forward and I think if we're going to say that we're a real democracy, everyone has to be involved. Alright, listen guys, thank you so much. Thank you to Sabina Brennan, of course, who is a regular on the programme and also to Harry McCann, who is a newbie on the programme, but we'd be delighted to have him back because we are not ageist here on High Noon. Um, and thank you for discussing this afternoon about ageism that affects both ends of the age spectrum. And I am afraid that's all we have time for today. Sean Moncrief is up next. Do stay tuned for that. My thanks to Michael Quilligan on sound, to Alex Russo, Kira Courtney and Siobhan McDonald producing and Mark Simpson editing. But from me, Kira, have a great weekend.